according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18 is our text. It has been for a number of lessons now. We are at the final portion of the chapter. You will recall that this episode, even though it's listed as a single episode in our Harmony of the Gospels, is actually a series of messages that all center on the need for humility. And it begins in uh, verse 1 where all the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And uh, message number 1 involves bringing a child to set before them as an example to say become humble as this child. Then we had the passage on stumbling blocks, the message on the 90 and 9, the message on uh, going to your brother for corrective measures, what sometimes is called church discipline. It's uh, corporate discipline in a stewardship preceding the dispensation of the church. And we're ready now uh, to look at the remainder of the chapter, which is the longest section as a, as a a fairly well-known parable, a parable on forgiveness. And this is where you have two slaves and one of them has a multi-billion dollar debt that no one could possibly repay in 50 lifetimes. Uh, the other slave has an, a smaller debt. It, it is fairly significant in its own right, but compared to the other debt, there's, there's no comparison. And that's the whole point to the message. So, And you know the parable, you know the story. The, the slave, even though he'd been forgiven the, the billions and billions of dollars, turns right around and has no grace, no forgiveness, no humility to be able to extend forgiveness of, of debt to his fellow slave. And, and so we're going to look at it again. I think in, in many ways this parable is so well known that it's actually misunderstood. And so we'll take some time to actually pour over the details. It's, uh, it's a pretty popular text for opposing schools in, in various theological camps. Each camp seems to like using it in their way. Uh, to defend their position and, and criticize somebody else's position. And I think that uh, when these different camps do that, they've, they've missed the whole point. And so we'll, uh, we'll spend some time on that here today. Before we do any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions, prejudices, and everything else and guide us in his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this new day you've set before us, and we thank you for the early morning prayer meeting that we already uh, enjoyed. It was uh, a massive blessing. We want to thank you for that. The ladies had a prayer time, Father, just now. We thank you for that as well. And Father, your, your blessings just keep multiplying because we have this hour of teaching set before us. We have uh, a time afterwards where we're going to uh, pour over this new uh, ABC reader that uh, you're graciously providing. I want to thank you for that. We've got another Greek class getting started up here this afternoon and then a prayer meeting and an evening service. There's just so much going on, Father. We want to praise you for making all these things possible, for uh, being at work in and through us for your good pleasure and for accomplishing the glory of your Son. And we ask that now for this service that your Son's glory would take center stage, that uh, we would have concentration and distraction set aside. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the text comes out of Matthew chapter 1, and this is point G in the outline, for those of you that have been following. Uh, it's episode 53, the disciples contend about greatness. Uh, point 1 was what highlighted that this single episode is actually a series of events, which all center on the need for humility. Under point 2, we simply title it Matthew's Events. 
and Matthew's events have now been outlined, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And so we're ready for uh, this particular portion of Matthew. Once we conclude this, then we're done with Matthew 18, and we will, under point three then, move on to examine the uh, additional items that uh, are recorded in Mark's parallel and in Luke's parallel. And, uh, and those, there's two items there, and uh, those should go pretty quickly. Uh, I think that the meat of it here is going to be this last part here of Matthew chapter 18. The series of messages on humility concluded, or concludes, if you want to put it in the present, with an unlimited call for forgiveness. We dealt with that last week. Peter wanted to limit forgiveness to seven times, and he thought that was generous. But the series of messages on humility concludes with an unlimited call for forgiveness and wraps up with a powerful parable on forgiveness. The biggest clue you'll ever find as to whether you have a mental attitude of humility or not is to ask yourself, are you able to forgive? Forgiveness is the evidence of humility. Lack of forgiveness is evidence of a deficiency in the realm of humility. They seem like different subjects. They are not. They are so closely intertwined that I almost want to call them synonymous. So with verses 21 and 22, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. All right. And that, of course, comes after the paragraph where he was talking about corporate discipline, where if your brother sins, you go to him one on one. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Then there's the additional steps of two or three or tell it to the church. And uh, Peter was kind of like the rich young ruler at this point. Right? Or, or someone who wants to know the fine print. Say, okay, all right, I hear what you're saying, but exactly uh, who's my neighbor? Or how many times do we have to go through this, this uh, discipline and repentance thing before we can finally just write them off and say, that's it, I've had it. And the point there being, of course, 70 times 7 or 77 times or an uncountable time, don't even keep track. Since love does not keep a list of wrongs, then uh, counting the times that you've had to forgive is uh, not an application of agape love. And so this unlimited call for forgiveness isn't just dropped with these two short verses in verses 21 and 22. We actually have a lengthy parable that's the longest of any parables we've come to since chapter 13, since the great mystery of the heaven, uh, mystery of the kingdom of heaven parables of Matthew 13. And so uh, let's glance at it here. Like I said, I think you're very familiar with it. For this reason, don't overlook the for this reason, uh, because that directly brings in what what preceded that. But the idea of forgiving uh, an unlimited number of times for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. You think, wow, (laughs) what a provision. Who wouldn't like that? What What good news. See, I experienced that once, actually, with the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs. was 
amazing. The United States federal government actually forgave me uh, a debt that was my debt. It was my legitimate debt. It wasn't my fault because I didn't know. But even though it wasn't my fault, it was still my responsibility. So I'm writing them all these letters saying, okay, here it is. Um, you know, it had to do with the GI Bill and the Army money, college money and all that. And they'd been overpaying me. And they overpaid me for three years. And I didn't know. And then all of a sudden, they caught on to their mistake, and they sent me a nice little letter saying, uh, we overpaid you, and we've been doing so month after month after month for 36 months. And uh, now the amount that we've overpaid you is this multiple thousands of dollars. Uh, please return said amount in this pretty pink envelope we included. <laughs> you know, as if I had, you know, that kind of money just sitting around in a drawer somewhere waiting to mail to the government. So uh, multiple letters got written back and forth, and sure enough, they did overpay, and we established that it was legitimate, but we also established that it was their mistake, not mine, and that it was innocent on my part and all of that, and so I made the request that because it was their fault instead of mine that they dismiss the debt, that they simply forgive it and write it off. And uh, sure enough, they did. And I thought, wow. wonder how much more I could have gotten from them, you know? <laughs> In any event, you say, thank you, Father, and you appreciate the grace. But see, you have to develop, or you ought to develop, a sense of appreciation and, and blessing when such things are provided. And so this slave ought to be the most thankful slave on the planet. He ought to be about you know, 10,000 talents more thankful than any other slave he's going to come across. And the problem is, is that he's not. So the slave went out, and sure enough, the very next day, it doesn't say the very next day, but the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. All right. Now, that is not chump change. It's not as if it's, you know, a nickel or ten cents or something. It is, it is actually a substantial amount relative to the economics of slaves, certainly. But the point being is that even though it is significant to the two of them, it is utterly insignificant when contrasted with the debt that the first debt that was mentioned there, the, the original debt that the first slave owned to or owed to the king. So we'll deal with that. Um, but here in verse 28, so this fellow slave owes him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And right away we recognize, you know what? There is no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no appreciation. There's no capacity. And uh, it's remarkable because this parable teaches us what happens when uh, our humanity does not have the capacity to appreciate the grace of what has been supplied to us. So the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Word for word. Uh, identical construction. This, this is what he, the first slave, had told the king. And now the second slave is using the identical words. Now, I view this as a um, repentance opportunity, a wake-up call, just a, a, one of those deja vu moments, right? Where, wait a minute, flashback, this sounds familiar. Ah, you know what? It just suddenly dawned on me, I'm being rather unforgiving, I'm being rather legalistic, I'm kind of a jerk, and given what I've been forgiven, I, I can afford to dismiss this debt here, see? So he has that opportunity, of course, he doesn't work. He doesn't listen to that opportunity. He was unwilling in that idea of being unwilling. He's unwilling to listen to his brother in a one-on-one -on -one situation. 
Sound familiar? That's what we were dealing with, with corporate discipline. You're going to your brother one-on-one, and is he willing to listen? Is he unwilling to listen? He was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So uh, the scene is set up, and, uh, and you recognize what the conflict is here. So, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. Remember, there's certain things we want to hear at the judgment seat of Christ, and this is not one of them. <laughs> we want to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant or slave. We don't want to hear, You wicked slave. And we don't want to hear, You wicked lazy slave. All right? You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? That's one of those loaded questions. It's a question that has only one way to answer. The, the way that it's phrased demands the answer that's required. Um, the answer is obviously yes. He has received such forgiveness. He should express such forgiveness. And uh, this, as I said, this is a, a rebuke for every single one of us. Because we all have our moments where we're not very humble, where we're not very forgiving. We have um, times in our lives where we hold grudges against people or circumstances or things or whatever. And any attitude we have that, that uh, fails to be forgiving is a prideful attitude. And it's an attitude that's forgotten a sense of proportion based on what we have been forgiven. Because any wrong, any injury, anything done wrong to you and I is simply in the human realm. And compared to what we've been forgiven, the infinite value of our eternal soul, what we've been forgiven and as we were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that we should not be able to forgive here in time on an earthly basis. Because remember... Whatever it was, whatever injury it was, whatever harm it was, as ugly, as carnal, as sinful, as brutal, I don't care. Whatever it was, as an injury against you, was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever it cost you, it cost the Father much more. And that's really the, the, the point here, but there's more, I think, that we want to develop, so let's take a look at it. Um, obviously, the question is, has only one way to answer it. And now look at the outcome, which I find interesting. His Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. It's always good to have torturers. Uh, you know, typically, you, you keep them on staff. They'll be, you know, permanently employed. Um, you know, kings and lords get those. Pastors don't tend to have those. They have deacons. I don't know how you equate deacons and torturers. but So the Lord moved with anger. And the, and the parallelism here is so wonderful because he's, in, in the first instance, he's moved with compassion. Here he's moved with anger. And it's, it's vivid the way the, the emotions are at work. It's vivid the way the emotions become motivators for thinking. And uh, with the emotions as motivators for thinking, then uh, the consequences are pretty, pretty severe. So moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him, which couldn't happen in 50 lifetimes. So obviously that's, that's a bad spot to be in. Now, 
just in case you kind of missed the, uh, the the truth behind the parable here, it closes with a pretty blunt statement in verse 35, my heavenly father. So all of a sudden we've, we've just been ripped out of par- the, the parable. Okay. Michael could tell us this. There's a, uh, this is a literary device. It's, What's it called? No, no, no. It's it's where you kind of you break through the. It's a moment where all of a sudden the fiction kind of stops and it breaks through to the to real life to the audience to the. Yes, what's that called? The fourth wall. That's what it's called. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, you know when they're duking it out with a sword fight and all of a sudden they stop and they speak to the audience kind of thing. Yeah, and then they resume their sword fighting. Again. All right. So. We've been in this parable. We've been in this story. And, we, and, and we're, we're caught up. And it, it really it, it brings you in. It sucks you in because it's so vivid and because it's so severe. And so we have a king and we have these slaves and we have the associates of these other slaves. And, and, and just the, it's astronomical. How could anyone be forgiven billions and millions of dollars and then throw a guy into prison for a few hundred bucks? See? It just defies, even an unbeliever would look at that and say, that's wrong. That defies any standard. Even the carnal cosmic standard would look at that and say, that's just wrong. So we're all absorbed into the story with these characters. And we, and we think, wow, he's being given to torturers until he should repay. And then all of a sudden, Jesus wraps it up with this word about God the Father. He says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just this parable of third person, impersonal characters. Now it's Jesus talking about his father and talking to you, the hearers, those that were listening to the whole story. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So this is the parable that wraps up. The unlimited call for forgiveness. And it's a parable that not only demands that we have the unlimited forgiveness, but shows us the pretty stark consequences if we don't, if we fail. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole chapter is kind of bookended that way. Uh, being delivered to torturers until you could repay, that's, that's pretty severe. But didn't the chapter start with a millstone being wrapped around your neck? <laughs> And chunked into the depths of the sea. So the opening of chapter 18, the closing of chapter 18, kind of have a a bookend effect here as they describe these dire situations. If you and I don't learn about humility and the application of humility through personal forgiveness. All right. Some information on this. Humility is required for entrance into the kingdom. That's how the chapter opened. This is point two. In the outline under G, an old account settled. I've been told that sometimes if you're just listening to the MP3 and you're not actually here live looking at the screen, sometimes the points or the outline is not as clear. So this is uh, main point two, Matthew's events, subpoint G, an old account settled from Matthew 18, 23 through 35, and now sub-point 2, humility is required for entrance into the kingdom. We saw that in verses 1 through 6. And that humility is evidenced by forgiveness for others. 
Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. That humility is evidenced by forgiveness for others. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And again, by the fruit you shall know them. If, if, there, if there is a demonstrated unwillingness to forgive, that's, that's pretty clear evidence that there's a lack of grace, there's a lack of love, there's a lack of forgiveness, and the appreciation for what God has done on our behalf. All right, now this king. Point three, the parable king desired to settle accounts. The parable king desired to settle accounts. Accounts is just simply a logos, which is a word, uh, a matter, an account, a thing. But the verb that's employed to settle that logos, the, the verb that's employed to settle this account or this affair, this matter, this thing, is sunairo, S-U-N-A-I-R-O, sunairo. Anytime you have the, uh, the soon prefix, think S-U-N or think S-Y-N, think together, like synchronize, synchronos. Your time matches up with somebody else's time. You put them together and now you're synchronos, you're synchronized, all right? Uh, sometimes the N becomes a M in some uh consonant blend combinations and so when you have soon or sum and you put it together with pathos you have sum pathos or sympathy all right this person's pathetic you're pathetic and so together you are sympathetic that's right you are synchronizing your pathos your feelings all right now in this case soon is uh, combined with iro now iro is to lift up Iro is to lift up. Jesus was lifted up. All right. Uh, it could be a person, could be a thing, could be a subject, could be anything. Um, pretty, pretty flexible term. But to lift up. In other words, you're lifting up your account. Somebody else is lifting up their account. They're in full public view. We're settling accounts. Might put a poker terminology to it, right? I've, I've seen it in movies. Red books, right? Laying your cards on the table, right? Time to show what you got. That's settling the accounts. And, uh, you know, the winning hand cashes in, the losing hands lose out. Now, the king desires to settle accounts. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting verb. In the New Testament, it's only found three, three times. And that becomes fairly significant when two of them are here. And the third one is over in chapter 25. And I want you to see these. It's used in back-to-back verses here in verses 23 and 24. In 23, this king wished to settle accounts with his slaves. In verse 24, the, the noun logos is omitted, but the verb is employed there again. When he had begun to settle, when he had begun to sunairo, when he had begun to, uh, to zero out the books or you know different expressions that we use. Okay, When he had begun... To settle. So those are the two uses there. And the circumstance here in bringing this slave forward. Okay. And I'm going to, we'll discuss who this slave is and who he represents and who the other slave is and who he represents and all of this stuff here in a moment. 
because uh, there's, there's about, I don't know how many different interpretations and understandings of this. And um, if I threw it out here right now and said, okay, is this guy saved or not? Or not? I'd get different answers for different reasons. And say, well, he's, he's forgiven. Look at that, he's forgiven. Oh, but then somehow the debt is retroactively reinstated and, and now he's handed over to torturers. So, hmm. Some people say, oh, well, look, that means he was saved and then he lost his salvation. Because his debt was forgiven, but then his debt's reinstated. And so if you're of an Arminian persuasion, you look at that and say, ah, look at that. Debt reinstated, lose your salvation. There you go. Okay? We'll have an answer for that. Or you look at him and you say, hmm, he was never saved at all. He just had a profession of faith. But since there was no fruit born, then he was never saved at all. And as evidenced by the fact that uh, he was tortured and all the rest of that, then he was not part of the elect and, and so on and so forth. Okay? Um, or I'd say, you know what? He was never saved and never thought he was saved. And I'll show you why here in a moment. Um, but let's look at the other one in chapter 25 before we get too far down this road. Because we have another one coming up in the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, Upper Room Discourse. Matthew 25. Another parable. Um, a man about to go on a journey called his own slaves and trusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and he went on his journey. And we, I think we're familiar with this one too. They did different things with their talents, and the one who received five was able to trade with them. He engaged in some uh, speculative uh, investment, some uh, ancient world capitalism at work there, and, uh, and actually made some money, gained five more. All right, pretty good return on his investment. In the same manner, uh, the man with the capacity for two talents gained two more. But the one with the capacity for only a single talent did nothing with it, buried it. Then the uh, master of the slaves comes back, and look what he does in verse 19. He, sunairo, settles accounts. And the ones that had doubled their money, the ones that had doubled the master's money, Okay, it wasn't their money. They were stewards of his investments. And uh, their reward, well done, good and faithful slave. See, that's what we want to hear at the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, the five guy, the five to ten guy got that, well done. And the two to four guy got that, well done. But the, the one to one guy, who's really the one to zero guy, because the one that he has is taken away, uh, he hears... You wicked, lazy slave. Done in verse 26. Master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. Now, these two parables are not related, yet they are. There are parallels between them, but they illustrate two important concepts. And I'm going to give them to you here at some points. Um, but the first one is called a wicked slave. This one's called a wicked, lazy slave, which I find to be significant. All right, so what are these guys? First of all, we have two situations where accounts are settled. The first one's in chapter 18. Accounts are settled when the servant is indebted. Point A, 
Accounts are settled when the servant is indebted. That was the case with this uh, first slave of chapter 18. This picture is the unbeliever who can only have his debts released by grace. This picture is the unbeliever who can only have his debts released by grace. There's no way he can earn it. There's no way he can redeem himself. It is beyond human capacity to repay that amount. And the only way to be out from under that bondage is to be forgiven by grace. Over in chapter 25, though, the accounts are settled a little bit differently. Accounts are also settled when the servant is entrusted with a stewardship. When the servant is entrusted with a stewardship. This picture is the believer who is expected to be productive with a master's wealth. So these are the big differences between chapter 18 and chapter 25. In chapter 18, there's no stewardship. It's a debt. The, um, this, should we give this guy a name? Besides jerk, you know? I mean, he's been forgiven so much. The 10,000 talent debt. The 10,000 debt. I mean, where do you get a credit line like that anyway? (laughs) So, the 10,000 talent debt guy, okay? Whatever name you want to call him, Mr. Ultimate Credit Risk, okay? He is not a steward. He is not managing the king's wealth. He has borrowed from the king's wealth... To do whatever he wanted to do with it. Whatever he did with it. You know, to me, yes, it's inconceivable how you could pay back such a debt. But behind that, I think it's inconceivable how you could spend that much money. (laughs) How does a slave spend 10,000 talents? You know, the whole... the, the, The national tribute that Herod had to pay Rome was a fraction of that. So what is the slave doing with that much debt? And where did he spend the money? So that's important to consider. In chapter 25, the servants there, the slaves there who are having their accounts settled are stewards managing the king's resources on behalf of the king. Whereas the slaves in chapter 18 are not stewards. But this first slave actually is a borrower spending money that's not his and not for the king's sake, but for his own sake. Is that making sense? Also, I don't know why I thought this, but for the longest time I used to think that both of these slaves had a debt to the king. That's not true. Only the first slave had a debt to the king. The second slave had no debt to the king. The second slave had a smaller debt, but it was a debt to the first slave. He was not indebted to the king. The king never forgave that second slave, didn't have to forgive that second slave. The king and that second slave had no commerce. The second slave, his debt was to the first slave. 
So that's a different difference between chapter 18 and chapter 25. In chapter 25, every single slave in that chapter has a direct relationship to the king and is accountable, answerable for how he uh, fulfilled his stewardship. Important differences. Now, I'm hoping this light's going to come on here in a moment. The, um, let me just put the points up here before I get ahead of myself. Point four. The two debts in the parable are incomparable to each other. It was like a couple of, uh, a few lessons ago when we had the unthinkable alternative. God utilized the language of extremes in order to present an unthinkable alternative. Plucking your eye out. Who would do such a thing? Chopping a hand off. How gruesome. So you portray an unthinkable alternative to show the extreme and to show, to communicate the seriousness of the issue that's being communicated. Something similar is happening here. This extreme uh, is creates this unthinkable situation. The debt between the slaves is insignificant. When contrasted with the infinite eternal debt the one slave had to the king. See, whether or not the second slave has a debt has to the king is not material, has no bearing on anything. Whether he's a believer or an unbeliever has no bearing on anything. I think we're debating the wrong question here. The fact is that slave number one was forgiven an infinite value and should have had a capacity to himself communicate forgiveness. The reason why the Father teaches us these lessons is so that we can exhibit these lessons and continue the lesson to others. And so, uh, and it's not just forgiveness, by the way. We receive grace, we express grace. We receive comfort, we express comfort. Second Corinthians 1. We receive love, we express love. What we've learned, we apply. This man should have learned forgiveness, but couldn't make application. We realize he didn't learn a thing. So the debts are incomparable. And there's different studies on this. I think different uh, scholars have tried to, uh, you know, create modern times dollar amounts to try to relate to these, or or if not raw dollar amounts, at least purchasing power kind of things. You just can't even conceive. It'd be like describing... Um, an annual salary on minimum wage, okay, and putting that up against the gross national product of Sweden or something. You know, it's just, you're, 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 you're mixing and matching there, talking about a personal economy versus a national economy. All right, now, before I give you point five, I'm going to read back through these verses again, and... Um, show you what we don't read in these verses. So let's look at it again. Um, Because I'm going to highlight for you here that this uh, whole incident between the king and the deaded slave has nothing to do with salvation. Not one thing. And don't, don't confuse the fact that the word forgiveness is used there. It will show that that was not obviously an eternal forgiveness by the end of the story. All right. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts 
with his slaves. Now, the king has a desire. It's expressed as a wish in verse 23. The will of the king. And this king has outstanding accounts. And the accounts come due, not at a time, a particular time, but as the king desires. Seems kind of capricious, <laughs> right? I mean, if we enter into a contract with somebody, we kind of like to know when the payment dates are. You know, if you buy a house, you kind of expect that you got 30 years to pay that or whatever you set up for your for your mortgage loan. All right. And then you can't get, you know, two or three months into it. And all of a sudden the bank comes to you and says, OK, we want all the rest of them tomorrow. Well, in the ancient world, the king could do what he wants. Call it debt due. Call it due today. Pay up. In any event, notice that this uh, involves a king with volition, a king with a will, a desire. He wished to settle accounts. And so he does so, and he begins to do so. Notice in verse 24, he begins to do so. Now, he probably has lots and lots of slaves that have accounts to be settled, but he starts with this guy. Why was it his turn? (laughs) Why couldn't this guy get delayed for a little bit? Why couldn't he kind of go to the end of the line, get some of these other guys first, give the guy more time? Started here. It's not the slave's choice when his time is up. It's the king's choice when the account is due. And uh, so here's one particular slave, owes him 10,000 talents, and the slave was brought to him. Don't uh, overlook the... uh, the imagery of brought to him because I believe it refers immediately to the expression released him in verse 27. That released him was not freeing him from his slavery. Released him was dismissing him from this immediate audience because he had been brought to the king. Now he is released. He is dismissed to resume his slavery condition. Verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold. He could do it, you know, slavery is as ugly as it is, but he is property and he is eligible for resale. And uh, to be sold into a, uh, a, a debtor's prison or into a labor camp kind of thing where all the proceeds go to this king until the debt's paid off, along with his wife and children and all that he had. So now the wife is going to be in slave wages and the children are going to be in slave wages and all of this now is that salvation <laughs> all right is that salvation we got to be careful because there is actually a medieval roman concept of Unbelievers who go to the lake of fire, or they go to hell, or purgatory, the Romans have all these theories. But unbelievers that go to the lake of fire, that somehow they're going to spend eternity paying off their debt. That's a wrong theology. Okay? And I'll show you why here in a moment. But the, uh, the idea, remember, the, the debt is infinite. And you get to a point, we still do to this day, human beings can come to a point in our culture, our modern 21st century American uh, consumer credit personal debt culture, 
where many Americans find themselves, not only are they in debt, but that debt's growing because they can't pay the minimum balances and, and the interest is stacking up higher than their monthly payments. And so they can pay for the next 30 years and they're going to be deeper in debt at the end of the 30 years than they were at the beginning of the 30 years. And so, you know, the idea that, oh, well, you have all eternity to pay it off. No. All right. In any event, the, um, the, the punitive nature is, uh, is something else. Because um, the more studies I do on hell, the less punitive it appears. We'll, we'll have some things coming up down the road on that. We've got Second Corinthians coming up where there's a lot of angelic conflict information. And then, of course, there's the rest of First Corinthians 15 with the resurrection chapter we're working on. All right. Quickly, though, what, we, what else are we not seeing here? The slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. How does this relate to salvation? What unbeliever can go to the king of the universe and say, Have patience with me, and if you give me just long enough, a little bit more time, if it was just long enough, Eventually, someday, I can earn my salvation. <laughs> no. So the idea of have patience with me and I will repay, that's not the attitude of an unworthy sinner accepting grace. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. I'm going to outline this for you in our sub-points. <clears throat> Again, uh, this is so often expressed as a salvation thing. Oh, isn't that great? There was a debt he couldn't pay, and so it was forgiven. That's not our salvation. We're not saved because God the Father feels compassion for us, and God the Father feels sorry for us. And God the Father says, oh, they can't earn it anyway. And God the Father says, okay, well, I forgive you. You can be saved. We're saved because, yes, we cannot pay, but someone else paid. And it wasn't because the Father was compassionate. It's because the Father was satisfied with that payment. Righteousness was adjusted. All right, let's put it in points and we'll let it sink in a little bit. Point five, the first slave is forgiven for his impossible debt. The first slave is forgiven for his impossible debt. And really, he's the center of the story. The second slave is only uh, a character prop and then the other slaves are also just incidental. The real story is this primary slave, this 10,000 talent debt slave. 10,000 talent, T-T-T-D-S. The 10,000 talent debt slave. All right. He's forgiven for his impossible debt. Now, you've got to understand. So point A. The king felt compassion. Splank needs am I. It's a mouthful, but it's a fun word. Splank needs am I. Number 4697. It's an emotional word. The splanknon are the kidneys. All right. 
or the bowels. Splank non would be singular. Splank na would be plural. <clears throat> Splank needs am I is a verb form. So take the noun kidney and make a verb out of it. The king was kidneyed or bowels. Make a verb of that. The king was... It doesn't translate in English. The idiom just doesn't come across. But to the Greeks, the, the, the kidneys were the center of passion and drive and emotion. And the closest thing we have in English is, is you have a gut feeling, right? It's the closest we have in English. So you just have this gut instinct, some kind of passion, some kind of fire in your belly maybe. We might use a phrase like that. We don't, we don't have, the idioms don't really come across. But splanchnizomai is a compassionate term. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Uh, um, you can make emotional decisions. They may not be the best decisions. Um, they might be good decisions. They might be poor decisions. All right? But the point is that it's emotions driving it. So the king felt compassion, splanchnizomai, released him, apaluo, to release or to dismiss... And forgave him. Afiemi is to forgive. Now, a couple things we need to say about this because there are there is a spectrum of, or there's a range for both releasing and forgiving. Releasing could be simply in about 15 minutes from now, we're going to come to the end of our hour. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to release you. That means I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to say, all right, class dismissed. You are free to depart. You know, as if you couldn't leave anyway. <laughs> all right, you're free to walk out right now if you want. We're not a cult or anything. But the point being is that you're going to be released. You're released from class. Okay, I'm not releasing you from bondage. You're not my slave. Okay, so that, but the word has that range of meaning. And, and all too often it's thought of, that, oh, look at this, the king released him, meaning he's no, he's not, he, he freed him, emancipation, he's no longer a slave, okay? And that he forgave him. Now, there's a range here as well. Because, yes, it could mean that he forgave, erased, cleared the debt, settled the account. Okay, that's one way, that's one end of this range of the spectrum in which Afiemi can be employed. It could indeed mean that he was completely 100%, here's your receipt, free and clear, re discharged from that debt. That's a possible meaning. And often we assume that's what's meant here. But a few verses later we see, you know what, that debt's still in place. Was it somehow reinstated or was it never completely discharged? Did we have the wrong idea of forgiven? Because not only... Does Afiemi have this range to forgive a debt or to dismiss a loan or something like that? But you can forgive somebody as a mental attitude. And that's truly what it's driving at, is that you have forgiveness for him. You can have forgiveness for a person who has wronged you. That is, from the standpoint of your mental attitude and your heart, you have forgiveness for that person. Now, even though you have forgiveness for that person, are there still sometimes ongoing 
ramifications. There may be ongoing legal repercussions. There may be ongoing financial arrangements. There may be ongoing other situations that has no bearing on whether or not you have forgiveness for that person. See, you know, if uh, we have these cases in the news where, you know, a, a family member of a murder victim or whatever, and they, they forgive the murderer for whatever they've done, you know, killing their family member, their loved one or whatever. Well, okay, that's great. We want that to happen. It, it's biblical. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's godly. And if it can happen, if, if a believer on doctrine can have forgiveness for even a murderer, it's a beautiful thing to see. But does that mean that there's still not going to be legal repercussions? Or in Huntsville, are they going to throw the switch? See. So there is a large range. And what I'm saying here is that the king, when we read that he had compassion, released him and forgave him the debt, that could include a range of understanding to mean that he forgave the immediate calling of that loan. That he postponed the deadline for repayment. And after all, is that not what the slave asked for? He said, have patience with me, I'll repay you everything. So the slave asked, give me more time. And so, to be released and forgiven could just as readily mean, all right, you're dismissed, pay back when you can. I'll show you that here in a moment. So even though he was released and forgiven, what does the passage tell us? So point B, yet the slave remained a slave, verse 32, and remained in debt, verse 34. See, I mean, we can debate if you want to debate, or you can debate this with a friend who has a different view or what have you. But in my position, I'm just going to look at the text and say, well, what does the text say? I look at verse 32, summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked, lazy, you wicked slave. This man is still a doulos. So whatever we decide to do with Apolluo, he was released. Whatever we do with released, we realize he remains a doulos. And he remains in debt. We can, we can discuss the range of meaning for forgiveness, whether it was an eternal, absolute forgiveness, or whether it was a temporal forgiveness. We can, we can discuss that range, but as we discuss that range, we cannot ignore the fact that verse 34 says, the debt remains. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tormentors, to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed him. The debt remains because the obligation is still there. If the debt had been forgiven, then nothing would be owed. Verse 34 says the owing circumstance still exists until he should repay all that was owed him. Okay? So there's, there's nothing in here that talks about anything being reinstated or something forgiven and then reapplied or any of that. It remains. He can very easily be dismissed and forgiven, still a slave and still in debt. It's natural to the vocabulary. It's natural to the context. And I believe it's also natural to the theology. I'll show you why here in a second. As long as we're not trapped into thinking that 
released him and forgave him the debt means that he's emancipated, no longer a slave and, and debt free. Okay? I think we do better if we reconcile every verse, put them together and understand that he can be released and forgiven while still a slave and still in debt. All right. Seven minutes left. We're almost going to make it. Point C. Here's what you don't find anywhere in these verses. This parable does not describe a substitute, a redeemer, someone able to and willing to pay the debt. This parable does not describe a substitute who pays the slave's debt in full. That's not a character in this drama. So this drama is not a picture of salvation. This parable does not describe a substitute who pays the slave's debt in full. It simply presents a king's compassion and forgiveness without that king's satisfaction or the payment made. I should rephrase that. Without uh, payment made to the king's satisfaction. That would be a better way to render that. This parable does not describe a substitute who pays the slave's debt in full. It simply presents a king's compassion and forgiveness without the full payment made to the king's satisfaction. Without the full payment made to the king's satisfaction. make a change to that before I forget. Because if the king was free to just say, oh, you're so pathetic. <laughs> you're so hopeless. I feel sorry for you. Okay. All right. All right. I'm sorry. Debt free. Well, then the wages of sin is not death. And truly, there's no need for Jesus to die on the cross. If the king is free to just simply dismiss debt and free and say, oh, well, okay. I have compassion. See, redemption is not emotion-driven. So, is this making sense? Okay. Because the, the true application here comes in D. The slave's release was not an emancipation. And the king's forgiveness was not based on propitiation through a sufficient redemption. See, I took point C and put it in theological terms for point D. <laughs> All right. Because what's satisfaction? Propitiation. And what's full payment made? Redemption. So the slave's release was not an emancipation. And the king's forgiveness was not based on propitiation through a sufficient redemption.
What did the slave ask for? He asked for patience. So he could work for his own release. Give me more time so I can earn my salvation. You and I have to recognize when unbelievers are asking their questions, are they asking questions um, at a, at, on the basis of a positive volition at the point of, of God consciousness? Are they indeed being drawn by the Father? Are they indeed being convicted by the Holy Spirit? Are they asking questions with a humility to hear your answers or to hear the Bible's answers or to truly know the truth? Or are they asking questions to be confrontational? Are they asking questions to uh, change the subject or to um, bring up their own issues or whatever? All right. What are they really asking for? When this man says, have patience with me, I will repay, he's not asking for a grace salvation. He's asking for uh, more time to earn his way. The slave asked for patience so he could work for his own release. And see, the amazing thing is, is that our Father is patient. He is patient. You know, I think about Gary last week and the memorial service and all of that. and <coughs> The life that he lived before Christ... And, uh, you know, a God less patient than our God might not have waited until December 1998. May have looked at at Gary and said, you know what? You know, because in 1997 he turned 50. Say, well, that's it. That's enough. Calling accounts. Calling in your debt. Payment must be made. See, the wages of sin is death, but when does the payment come due? Why did the Father give 60 years instead of 50? That's in the Father's hands anyway. Our days are numbered before there's even one of them. But the Father in his foreknowledge knows. That's why King Manasseh had 55 years on the throne of Judah. The most wicked king Judah ever had reigned the longest. David only reigned 40 years. Why would Manasseh get 55? David was the greatest king Judah ever had. But Manasseh got 55 years. Why? Because it was in the 54th or 55th year that he actually repented and got saved. So our God is patient. The king is indeed patient. But you'll notice, let's look at 2 Peter 3.9. I think you're familiar with this. 2 Peter 3.9. part of the day and age in which we live, last days with mockers, somehow thinking that God's plan is not going to come about because it's been a couple thousand years since he was here. Well, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. If we think things are slow, what do we know? We're the puny creatures. We're like, you know... What are those fruit flies that live just hours? Their total lifespan is just a mere hours. They're born. And then in a few minutes, they're breeding already. And then in a few more minutes, they're, they're gone. Okay? What an existence. 
So imagine taking retirement advice from a fruit fly. You know, you're approaching 40 or whatever, and you're thinking 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, when am I going to retire? You're trying to, you're trying to do some investment planning with your money guys or whoever. And all of a sudden, this fruit fly comes in and says, well, let me tell you about some long-term planning. <laughs> oh. And here's human beings thinking that God's plan is slow. No, God's not slow. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Notice the phrase, wishing. It's the identical term as the king in our parable who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. The king is indeed patient, but his compassion cannot violate his righteousness. Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2. 2. The king is indeed patient, but his compassion cannot violate his righteousness. We'll dismiss with these because this is our last scripture. Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2. 2. Romans 3.25. keeping you about three minutes long today, so I'll pay you back after the rapture. Notice, uh, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. It's not simply provided because, oh well, God feels compassion and feels sorry because you're so pathetic. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the compassion of a God who felt sorry for you. No. Through the redemption, the full purchase price being paid to the Father's satisfaction. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, satisfaction, debt paid in full. There's the receipt. Paid for. Propitiation in His blood through faith. Notice, through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because of the forbearance of God. Notice the patience here. In the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Now, God was patient all throughout the Old Testament times. And He forgave sin. But sin was not removed until the payment was made and the Father was satisfied. That's why Abraham and David and every Old Testament saint went to paradise. Went to Abraham's bosom. They were forgiven. Sins were covered, atoned for, passed over, but not removed. And the Father could not have those sinners in His presence. He forgave them. And they were in paradise in Abraham's bosom. But they could not be brought to the third heaven in the presence of the Father until redemption was paid. And the Father was satisfied. And so Jesus Christ then led captivity captive, and Abraham's bosom is paradise is in the third heaven today. He cannot violate his righteousness. He can be patient, but that patience is waiting for a full payment to be made. This slave in the parable said, Be patient, but said nothing about payment being made. He just promised, Oh, yeah, I'll pay someday. First John two two. 
Another passage on uh, propitiation. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus Christ is the satisfaction to God the Father. His payment takes care of the sin problem. All right. I owe you five minutes. And if you can't forgive me, then you need another few hours on forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word for this time together. I just thank you so much that uh, you are the faithful one. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for taking the time to allow us to come to understanding and for working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.